caring for the needs of the kingdom and our own needs here on this earth. Let us bow before him in a moment of prayer. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, that by your grace and mercy, we as your children have the great privilege and opportunity to come before you asking. We, O Lord, think of many things in our own society, world, and our church that you've called us to pray for according to your scriptures. We think, O Lord, of our government. Perhaps today we think of our local governments. There are many that are established around us. We pray, O Lord, for the various leaders within these governments. We pray that you'd be gracious to them, O Lord, as they seek to work through the office that you yourself have established them in. We pray that you would give them mercy, the various leaders within our community, but you'd give them grace and wisdom and knowledge to exercise their office well, that we would be a people that would benefit commonly by their leadership among us. We pray, O Lord, that you'd be gracious to our various mayors, to the county boards. There are many who are represented within our own congregation here. And we pray, O Lord, for the prosperity of the people, not, throughout, not merely throughout all of Illinois, but in our region here in the greater Edwardsville area. We pray also, O Lord, for uh, the work of your church. We think of Mosaic Pregnancy Center and their work in preserving the life of the unborn. We pray, O Lord, that you would protect their mission as they see it in preserving and promoting life. We pray that they would not drift away from that mission, but that they would maintain that mission. And in maintaining that mission, O Lord, that many, many children would see the light of day. We pray, O Lord, for those little ones now, those who Mosaic are caring for. We pray that through this ministry there would be connections to the local church and that in those connections, these ones who were perhaps once despised, ready for destruction. May they, O Lord, not only see the light of day, but may by their profession through this ministry know not a day apart from you. We pray, O Lord, that you bless this ministry, that you maintain its mission and its influence. We pray also, O Lord, for those who are lost. We think of those, O Lord, who are lost perhaps in Europe, a place where we have benefited greatly, at least when we think of our own tradition with the Protestant Reformation, a place that was once vibrantly committed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we hear of great names, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and many others, O Lord, who helped establish the Protestant tradition and our own tradition as we know it today now largely apostatizing from that tradition, rejecting the truth and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you'd raise many up. You'd raise many up to go back to this land, to evangelize it and to draw people back to the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, may not empty tradition fill the land of Europe, but may a vibrant confession and profession of faith ring true once more. Therefore, we pray for the hearts of those who are in Europe who do not know you. We pray that you'd soften them now to hear the gospel, to hear of the Messiah, the true Messiah, and all that he has done for this sick and dying world. We pray that you'd use missionaries and churches alike 
present the gospel when the opportunities arise. But we also pray, O oh Lord, for our own congregation. This morning we pray for the session and the elders. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would continue to be gracious to them. That as we are, are recalling 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 on the, the, the qualifications for office, perhaps, that our elders would continue to grow in sanctifi sanctification concerning these matters. That our elders would be the best among us as examples of what godly people look like. Oh Lord, be gracious to our elders as they often take on heavy loads concerning the spiritual care of our own congregation here. We pray, O oh Lord, that through their leadership our congregation would be blessed and that, O oh Lord, we would grow in greater likeness of you. Be with our session. Bless them in their shepherding capacity and their care for the congregation. Instill within them and instill within my own heart a greater capacity to shepherd, shepherd and lead our congregation here. O oh Lord, we pray for those who are in need of help as well. Though I don't know any, perhaps, on my own moment here today, there are many unspoken needs, many hurts, many pains within our own congregation here, even here this morning. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you'd be gracious to all of us for whatever we are endeavoring to pursue, the difficulties of life, the sacrifices and the self-denial that we have to experience. O oh Lord, instill a culture of sanctifying grace within our congregation that we might be a people of grace and truth. In grace and truth, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. <clears throat> We're in the second part of the chapter, but this pericope, this section of Luke, is actually very intimately tied to the previous section. You remember last week, or recall, that Jesus had sent out his disciples. And in the sending out of his disciples, they were called to preach the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, healing and declaring the kingdom of God to all who would hear. We recall Herod catching wind that Jesus was doing this ministry, and he wondered who Jesus was. And then we ended the passage by considering the 5,000 plus that Jesus had fed. And in that same crowd, we recall the question of who is this Jesus? Who is this man who has been healing, feeding, and bringing about great miracles, teaching us the gospel of the coming kingdom of God? Who is he? The question perhaps falls on deaf ears as we don't get an answer, but today we do. Jesus decides to answer that question, not to the multitude of 5,000, but to the 12, as Jesus finally withdraws. He's been seeking to withdraw for quite some time and has not had the opportunity to. As any time he was sighted, he was engulfed, but today he withdraws. And in that withdrawal, we'll see his true identity. Stand then as we hear from Luke chapter 9. We'll pick up in verse 18 and go through verse 36. Now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. 
Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he rebuked and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my, of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when it comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took himself, him, Peter, and John, and James, and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what was said. And he was saying these, And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out from the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice was spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one of those days anything of what they had seen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Our identity can change the dynamic and expectations of our relationships. When someone finds out who you are, it can change how you talk to that person. As a pastor, I know this very intimately and well. A few years ago, when I was buying a car, I decided that I would go incognito. I would conceal my identity to the car salesman. I would go in just as average Joe Scott Edberg in his Carhartt and his blue jeans. I was just a normal guy. Concealed it. Concealed who I was to this salesperson. But this salesperson was quite the character. He was a unique salesperson. Maybe most salesmen are unique characters given their vocation, but this one was unique. He swore like a sailor. He smoked like a chimney. He told stories that you would be horrified to tell a pastor. He had such interesting stories. In some ways, it was a refreshing experience because there is a certain facade, a certain veneer that people put on when they approach me as a pastor, when they know my identity. Sometimes it sculpts and changes our conversation. 
But the interesting part about this meeting, what I found so interesting, is we got to the credit checks. And at the credit checks, all comes out. You must know my credit. You must know my employment. And that is when I had to say, I am the pastor, a pastor at First Presbyterian Church here in town. You should have seen his eyes widen. The conversation wasn't the same after. Those crazy stories and talking points all evaporated. His language cleaned up. He put away the smokes. All of his jokes seemed to revolve around funny jokes concerning the church that were inoffensive. It was a different experience. Sometimes when we learn the identity, it changes everything as we deal with a person. And that's what we learn today when we think of Jesus' identity and our identity as it relates to him. When we truly begin to understand who Jesus is, it changes who we are and how we relate to him. When we embrace and learn Jesus' identity, in other words, it changes everything. Jesus at this point was looking for solitude. He's been looking for weeks to withdraw And he finally gets that opportunity. He's alone with his disciples. And as he withdraws, it seems he has a question that has been pecking away at his mind as he prays to the Father. You see, Jesus prays to the Father to continue to learn his own identity, his own role in the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ on what he must accomplish as the God-man. He prays to the Father often to learn the next parts in his humanity of what will unfold. And as he's praying to the Father, he begins to wonder. As he knows his own identity before the Father, he begins to wonder what other people think of him. He polls, a popularity poll, oh, to the whole, con- to the whole group. Who do the crowds say that I am? There's a concern for Jesus' identity and for the identity of those who he is preaching to. There's an identity crisis in this passage. Who is Jesus Christ? Perhaps we ourselves have our own identity issues, do we not? Who doesn't have an issue with their own identity? Our image, our desires, our styles, our language are all deeply informed by what our identity is. And if we're honest with ourselves today, as we think through our identity, I know all of you, your Sunday attending Christians, you say, my identity is in Christ. But the reality and the truth of the matter is that your identity is split. It's split between both Christ and this world. You have temptations that constantly pull your identity each and every way. And what my hope today is in this passage is that we can see great unity in unifying who you are by your understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And so what I want you to know is Jesus' identity changes your identity. That's the main idea of the passage today. Jesus' identity changes your identity. And the first thing when we think about that idea is first you must learn to recognize his identity. You might say, Scott, I got this one in the bag. This is the easy one. But is it? Look down at verse 18 with me. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets of old has risen. The conversation concerning Jesus' identity is thus carrying over in this passage. 
There are many options for who Jesus could be, and the crowd is trying to decipher, just like Herod was trying to decipher, who Jesus was. We know for a fact the people believed that Jesus could do great miracles. He had a great message concerning the coming kingdom of God, that he could heal and raise the dead, that he could cast out demons. That is indisputable fact to the crowds. But just because Jesus does all these things, that doesn't necessarily reveal who exactly he is. Yes, we've gotten glimpses as readers of the New Testament up until this point. We've read the birth narrative. The crowds likely don't have those kind of details that we just take for granted. And so they wonder, is he John, is he Elijah, or is he some other recycled prophet of the Old Testament? Those are the limiting factors. They all believed in Jesus at some level, but did they know who he truly was? A Barna Research poll, though I don't give great deference to polls, given the nature of skewing them, says that 92% of Americans believe Jesus Christ is a real person. 92, but how many of those 92 know Jesus Christ? It's because you know about Jesus Christ, just because you even believe in the miracles of Jesus Christ, or you like his message, it's just so good. Do you know who Jesus Christ is, or do you merely admire him, his work, and his teaching? Are you part of this crowd? Yes. You ask the question, is Jesus popular? Yes, of course he's popular. He's even popular in our own day and age. But does the crowd have a saving knowledge of Christ? That is the more difficult question question I don't think is as encouraging as perhaps you might think. But there's another option. There's another option. Jesus could be more than those people that we had just referenced, more than a recycled prophet of old. In verse 20, Jesus turns that question as he has polled the crowds, now let me poll my disciples. What do my disciples believe about me? And Peter answered, the Christ, the God of God. It's unique, and you go to the other apostle, uh, the other uh, gospels, you see that this phrase changes just so subtly, but the main influence and the driving force remains the same. And Mark, uh, Mark records that Peter says the Messiah, and Matthew, it's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We see the substance. What is Peter claiming that who Jesus is? His identity is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He gets the right answer to Jesus. It is clear the disciples know more than the crowds who are wondering. They know more about his identity. But what is interesting, even though they get the right answer, you get a surprising response from Jesus. Sometimes I'm proud when I think I have the answer and no one else in the room has it. I'd be, perhaps to my own chagrin, appalled if I give the right answer. And he says, yes, you're correct, but I rebuke you. That's what happens here. When Peter gives the right textbook answer, what does Jesus say in verse 21? And he rebuked and commanded them to tell no one. I know all of you, as you read your Bibles here, none of your Bibles translate that word as rebuke. (laughs) And you may have been wondering, what version is he reading from? The the SIV, the Scott-inspired version. The, The word here in the Greek, is rebuked. And every other instance within the Gospel of Luke and mostly throughout all the New Testament, when this word comes up, it means rebuke. In this one instance, 
translators find it uncomfortable to translate it as rebuke. Why? Because they get the right answer. (laughs) But I think it's rightly translated as rebuked for this reason, because the disciples, though they have the right answer, they are still learning about what that answer means, and they don't have the whole picture. Yes, he is the Messiah, but what is the Messiah to the average Jewish man in Palestine at this time? It was the person who had come to save and deliver God's people. From whom, you might wonder. The disciples thought when they charged Jesus as the Messiah that that Jesus was coming to save them from Rome. And that's why he rebukes them. Because Jesus is going to have to turn over their own understanding of the word Messiah. Savior, Christ, Son of God. He has to take those great terms that all define him accurately and reteach his own disciples, undo their own presuppositions, and fix their understanding because they fall short in it. So he rebukes them and commands them to tell no one. He says, we need to get your ducks in order first before you go spreading this news around. I need you to understand and know what it means that I am the Messiah before you tell people that I am the Messiah. They got the right answer, but they need the right understanding. And that's probably where it hits more home for us here today. Perhaps we aren't like the crowds wondering if Jesus is some recycled prophet of old. I'd assume most of us do not. But do we fully or well prepared to understand what that word Messiah means? What do you understand Jesus as the Messiah to mean. That's what I ask you. And perhaps that's where we can reevaluate the identity of Christ together. What is the Messiah? I'll give you the answer just so that you can all move on, perhaps study it further. The Messiah is the one who comes into the world, who's the same substance as the Father, true God of true God, who takes upon human flesh and dies not to save us from Rome, but to save us from Satan, the fallen world, and our own sin. That is the mission of Christ. The disciples, as you'll see later in the gospel, as they debate when Jesus becomes the king of Israel, when he establishes his kingdom locally in Palestine, they they, they still don't get it, and they debate amongst one another who will sit at his right and his left. They are still thinking throughout the gospel to earthly-minded. When they think of Messiah, they think the new king of Israel. And I want to be a part of his administration. They're not thinking of the spiritual. They miss the point. And so I hope you don't miss the point this morning. You must recognize his identity. He's not merely an earthly savior, a worldly savior. He's an eternal savior that saves us from all of our sin and misery. The second point I want you to see is that when you begin to recognize his identity rightly, we must learn then to deny ourselves. Remember, my relationship with the car dealership changed immediately with that salesman as I revealed my identity. He began then to deny himself (laughs) because he was perhaps ashamed or embarrassed. And we do the same with the Lord Jesus Christ. We must learn to deny ourselves. And we see this in verse 23 and 24. When we decide to follow Christ, we must learn to deny self. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is an incredible statement, especially in hindsight, as Jesus himself would take up his own cross. The disciples are unaware of it at this time. 
They would have been completely familiar with what Jesus was talking about. They would have known that Jesus is talking about an excruciating way to die when found guilty of treason or of insurrection. They would have seen crosses at Calvary of many wicked and sinful people dying. And Jesus is saying, you must be willing to deny yourself and take up that cross. That cross that will lead where? To death. It doesn't lead to happiness and joy, as perhaps some pastors will tell you it leads to death. Jesus isn't saying, though, that every person who bears the cross will die. But what he is saying is that those who deny themselves to follow Jesus must daily choose to bear the cross that leads to death. It's an interesting, perhaps a difficult call. It's a daily call that each one of us must make. Will I deny myself today or will I give in to the urges and worldly nature of my own soul? Will I die to self or choose Christ? There is self-denial in the Christian faith. You've all dealt with self-denial. I know you all have at some point, whether it be religious or non-religious. I love eating personally. I love eating. Favorite pastime. Past pastors are often called food mercenaries, and you know it because I attend every one of your shepherding groups, and I eat. And sometimes I don't even stay for the spiritual exercises. I, I and my family withdraw. We got the food. We, we are food mercenaries as pastors. At my worst, I was perhaps 180 pounds of pure fat. Pure fat. And a few years ago, I decided to cut back. Decided to cut back on three areas, sugars, carbs, and alcohol. I thought, if I could do those three things, then maybe I can lose weight. And within the first three months, I lost 20 pounds. It was great, 180 to 160. Life-changing experience. I could bend down and tie my shoes much easier than when I was 180. It was just so delightful. But I tell you what, sugar, carbs, and alcohol in limited and responsible quantities are enjoyable. And I found myself often in those three months thinking, in my own, own mind's eye, Oh my goodness, cookies, sourdough, Moscow mules, how I miss thee. I know there is great sacrifice here today because I, I look nicer. I have more mobility. I feel better, but I missed them. We all do self-denial. We deny our own appetites from time to time, especially if you have had any familiarity with dieting. You deny yourself. You deny those appetites because you really want those things, but you know for whatever reason, whether it be for health or some other goal or aspiration or just for fun, you choose to deny yourself. And Christians must do the same, but even to a greater extent for Jesus Christ. Every day I had to wake up and say, I will not have cookies, sourdough, or mules. And you must do the same as it relates to taking up your cross. You must say daily, I will choose to deny myself and follow Jesus Christ. But this is not only the self-denial, is not only the idea here. We see that this self-denial does also lead to sacrifice, and we see that in verse 24. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to, if he gains the whole world but forfeits and loses himself? There's sacrifice here. Jesus, perhaps, is teaching us a paradox. 
For those who seek to save their life, they will lose it. That seems like the opposite, right? If you're trying to save your life, you would think that you'd be successful. If you make proper preparations to save your own life, you think you would live. But what Jesus is saying here is that the consequence of one's saving self by conforming to the standards, values, and means of this world will ultimately mean that they will lose themselves. If they seek to gain the world, they will forfeit themselves. It seems like the opposite of what we know with common wisdom and knowledge. What Jesus says here is that if you are consumed by establishing yourself according to worldly means, you will be successful in that, and in so doing, you will lose me in the process. There is a self-denial that leads to self-sacrifice, meaning that Christians can't do what non-Christians do sometimes. We can't flaunt our own egos, seeking to establish our own identity, seeking to propel us forward by any means necessary. We must be sacrificial. In verse 27, we see, though, there is encouragement here. There's a reward for being a person of self-denial. You know, there is, there is a carrot at the end of this stick, and it is an encouraging one. And I tell you truly, Jesus said, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What do we do with a passage such as this? It seems like another conundrum. Jesus was just saying a paradoxical statement. Now he is saying that some will not die until they see the kingdom of God. You might have wondered, I almost skipped this entire section in this sermon and just let you wonder, what does Jesus mean by this? But I I will be gracious. I'll be gracious in that what Jesus means by the kingdom of God is probably not what you think it means. You probably are thinking his second coming, right? That some will live and not die until they see Christ risen again at his second coming where he establishes very physically his kingdom on this earth. Well, if that's your understanding of the passage, it seems like this has failed. <laughs> I don't know any disciples or apostles living today. There are none at Providence where they would certainly attend. They were alive. They're not here. So what does it mean? Well, it could mean the very next section of the passage, eight days later. But it seems like Jesus, if he meant that when he's on the mountain during the transfiguration, being with Moses and God and, and Elijah, it seems it would, be, it would be a little too much to say that you will not taste death until eight days from now. It seems a little out there. I think what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of God, he is talking about his death, resurrection, and ascension. So what he is saying is that I will tell you truly that some are standing here today who will not taste death until they see me raise again and ascend to heaven. That is the kingdom of God. We see kingdom of God throughout the New Testament as meaning the established spiritual kingdom that Christ establishes through his sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascension. And that is what is in view here. That they will see Christ raised from the dead. Jesus had just told them he will die. But the reward of that death is that they will see their promised kingdom come in his resurrection. And they'll see it even further fulfilled as he ascends. 
Jesus asks a lot of us here. There is a great reward, but there's no denying that Jesus asks a lot. When you learn his identity, it becomes easier. He adds sugar, perhaps, to that medicine to make it easier to swallow self-denial. But first, you must learn his identity. And when you learn his identity, you will learn to deny and sacrifice self. Not that many of you or most of you will die, but that you are prepared because of who he is. I don't know about you, though. Self-denial, sacrifice. To me, it seems like a difficult call. I want to be a quiet American. I bought property with two acres so that my neighbors would be far enough from me that I could be quiet, that they wouldn't mess with me and I wouldn't mess with them. I don't want to engage. I just want to have a quiet life, a peaceful life. And it seems what Jesus is calling to us here is not a quiet and peaceful life. Self-denial and sacrifice seems to be self-denying and sacrificing. It's tempting to be a quiet Christian. I bet most of us, that's our natural disposition. I just want to make it through with the least amount of traction. What does this mean for us? Well, I think it means that even in our public lives, we must count this truth as truth. That as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we go out in the society, it's easy for everyone to recognize Christians within the assembly. But when we go out to our normal lives, we must generally have this mindset of self-sacrificial denial. And that means that people will know that we are Christians. It may not mean that you're perhaps an evangelist that goes on every street corner every other day whenever you have a day off proclaiming the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what it does mean is that people know our identity because of how our identity is formed by Christ's identity. I want you to think in your own mind's eye of your own workplace. Do they know that you are a Christian? We'll start there. It's an easy fruit perhaps to our own chagrin if they do not. Perhaps it reveals the part we didn't read of our own shame for Christ, that we are unwilling to be known by his name, by his kingdom, by his grace, and by his work. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and bear witness that your identity reflects his. And if that is the case, they will know, and you will gladly share it. The last thing I want you to see, though, Jesus, changing our identi- uh, Jesus' identity changing our identity, we deal with that we will witness then his glory. When Jesus changes our identity to conform ourselves to his identity, we will see his glory. Eight days after the identity question was popped, we have one of my favorite passages within all the New Testament. They go to the mountain and pray. Look at verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were walking, talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. When thinking through the identity question, we get the assurance now that Jesus wasn't Moses, Elijah, or some other recycled prophet. We see Jesus with the people others claimed him to be as he ascends this mountain. 
And we notice as Jesus ascends this mountain that he begins to radiate. His appearance and face are altered. His clothing becomes dazzling white. He's changed. Perhaps draws us back as we'll hear from ruling Elder Horsley in a couple weeks when Moses ascends the mountain. All the formulas seem to be here that reflect that situation. You think of mountains, God, radiating glory, clouds, a voice from God, fear of the people. All the elements that of Sinai seem to be in this cocktail. But there is something that is insurmountably different about this experience than Moses' own experience. And that is that Moses' radiating glory was not his own, but God's. Whereas Jesus here is from himself. He is God incarnate. And he radiates not with derived glory, but with the glory that is bestowed upon him as creator. There is perhaps a picture here of heaven and earth colliding, where we see just a picture, a taste of the radiating glory of Christ in the incarnation. He takes on full glory. He radiates with it. And in that radiation, somehow, the disciples fall asleep. The three that are with him. It must have been a boring night before that. They awake to seeing this magnificent experience. Something that as they awoke to see, they thought, we should keep this here for a little longer. We missed the first part. Let's keep it a little longer. And how do they seek to keep it a little longer? Peter, you know the wise one, says, Master, it is good that we are here. We're glad to be here. Let us make three tents, one for each of you. You see, Peter likes this experience, this moment so much. It meant so much to him, especially in light of the last eight days and learning the identity of Christ, that Peter wants to savor the moment. He did not hear all of the conversation about Jesus coming to die in this sense uh, that they were talking about before, going to Jerusalem, dying, returning to the Father. They missed all of that. And so when they see this great, magnificent experience, they want to set up camp. They want to build infrastructure. They want to set up shop. And Peter, as he often does before he becomes the true apostle that would establish the Jerusalem church, he is wrong. You see, Peter wants to preserve the moment. When I was in high school, we would go to winter camp, and I would always wish that that moment would not end. It would only be Friday, Saturday, and part of Sunday, and then we would drive home. And I remember so often, Sunday afternoon, I was like, do we have to go? I just want to stay a little longer. I just want to experience this a little longer. Why? Because when I was at camp, all of my worries, all of my distractions, all the things that were common to life were gone. It was just me and the divine, the grace of God, learning about the truths of Scripture, having fun and learning about God. There were great things to wed together. I enjoyed it so much, I never wanted it to end. And it seems, at least if I could project a little, that's what Peter is going through. He's experiencing an experience that he does not want to end. It is so delightful, so spiritually enriching, so encouraging that he does not want it to end. It's witnessing the glory of God. He witnesses it and does not want it to go away. But we know that there are other plans here. Jesus reveals them to Moses and Elijah. 
And he reminds the disciples that he cannot stay here. To stay here would be to fail his plan. He must go down from the mountain. He must go home from the camp. And he must continue the plan of the Lord. But before they do that, we get this final glorious declaration from God. Akin to the baptism where God says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The final declaration, perhaps the, the, the climax of this whole passage is found right here. If you want to know the identity of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, we see it as he relates to the Father himself. The disciples get a good lesson, a good learning experience of what the term Messiah truly means. It means not merely earthly king, but one who is sent from God himself as God himself in the second person of the Trinity. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. He is my only begotten, my unique son that I have sent to you. Not merely to conquer Rome, but to conquer all the earth. Not physically, at least not in the sense that you understand it, but spiritually where the gospel will go out and transcend cultures and go to the ends of the earth. This gospel is bigger than you can understand. That is what this declaration is ushering in for these disciples. If you understand this identity, and I hope you do, it is that the gospel doesn't stop in Israel. It doesn't stop in Rome. It doesn't stop in Spain or India or even America. It goes to the ends of the earth because this is his son, his only son. And he has come that he might die so that you could live. It is a glorious calling. A glory that comes from death, misery, and pain. A glory that we see through our own, our own self-denial and sacrifice. Jesus' identity changes your identity. That's what I want you to walk away with here. If nothing else, that you could understand when you truly understand the messianic nature of the Messiah when you realize in your heart of hearts that he has come to die, not for other people's sin, but your own sin, that is when your identity is changed. And that's perhaps the encouragement for all of us here as we think of a table that is prepared for us. You are a people that have had your identities changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. You radiate with his glory. You see his glory perhaps as we gather with the table that is around us here today. And in that table... As we see his glory, our identities are continually transformed greater and greater by sanctification into his identity, the conforming nature of the power of God, Christ. May we shine before all the world and see. But today, perhaps you've heard the gospel message many times, and you've had your own self-doubts. Do I truly believe who this Christ is? You know all the answers intellectually. You're like the disciples who knew the right Sunday school answer, Messiah. But do you in your heart of hearts reckon with your own sin and need for Christ? Today, if you do not know him, if you have doubts, today is the day. Call upon him while he may be found. And for the rest of us, it is time to re-up our great engagement with him, that we might see his glory.
by the breaking of his body and the pouring out of his blood. Let us close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the glory of Christ. We pray, O Lord, that as we think of the sacrament prepared before us, that you'd be gracious to us, that in the sacrament we would see our own identities growing in Christ-likeness, that we would become more like you, O Lord, and less like ourselves. Would you be gracious to us this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.